Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Invisible London. This is, uh, well, it's episode three that I've put out, but bizarrely the, the first episode was an introduction. The second episode was a bonus because I hadn't put out a proper episode. Uh, and this is actually uh, episode one proper. This is the first of what I hope will be a continuing series of podcasts focused solely on um, a small area or a, uh, a designated little route from one place to another across London. Uh, this episode we're going to be looking at the area of Green Park uh, and it's a little short route, just literally it's a, it's a straight line we're going to be heading due south from Green Park Tube Station uh, across the park and to the Queen Victoria Memorial ending up outside Buckingham Palace. It's a walk that I've done many, many times when I lived in South London. This was the end of my walk to work, and so uh, every morning I'd, I'd do this little route. And uh, it was through looking at the history of the area that I realised you know, what an awful lot there is to see, uh, and what a lot of weird and wonderful history that exists there. Um, this isn't the usual piece, obviously, there's uh, a certain history to Green Park, which is actually it's displayed on a board, which actually, if you're in the park, it's on your left-hand side. I think there's a little uh, display board with some history on, just by the uh, entrance when you go through the gates next to the Ritz Hotel. And that'll tell you the commonly known history of the park. It'll give you descriptions of the, the wildlife, some of the other... Uh, points of interest, you know, there's war memorials and fountains and statues uh, that are all worth going and have a look at. It's a fantastic park, actually. It's uh, um, Particularly in summer, it's uh, a really good place to have a little sit-down. Uh, and there's a, uh, an M&S shop just over the road where you can get some drinks and snacks in and uh, have a, a gay old time. But, you know, I'm not interested in the things which you can read on the... Uh, Westminster Council signpost um, there's a lot more to it than uh, what they'll ever tell you uh, and so essentially we may as well uh, we'll jump right in uh, so if you get to Green Park I'd recommend um, getting to the uh, well actually looking at it on a map the, the top right corner which is always the, the northern corner um, standing with the uh, the exit to the tube station behind you. It's uh, it's a new design tube station. Actually, I always quite like it because it always sort of reminds me of a, a sort of a bunker, like something out of Star Wars. So uh, that thrills me straight away. But um, the first thing I'll point out, which you know, there's nothing mysterious or occult about this. But uh, if you are ever in a underground tube station if you live or work in London you know you'll probably go through two or three every day uh, but every uh, London underground station has little tiny blue demarcation plaques which are usually about head height uh, at the beginning and end of every corridor um, that you ever walk through but they're also on staircases they're on every door every lift every set of escalators will have somewhere um, attached to the wall, a little tiny blue plaque. It's about the size of uh, your thumb, probably. And these are always the same in their layout. There'll be two numbers, uh, one written above the other as if it's a, uh, a fraction. Uh, and these are uh, location points. Every station uh, will have a integral map. Every room, door, corridor, uh, lift will have a room code. Uh, and that is the, the bottom number. So the exit to Green Park, I think, is 022. So that's room 22 in the whole complex. Uh, and uh, the, the top number, that is the level you are at. So uh, as you go in at street level, that is level 1. Every level you go down, the uh, obviously the number goes up. So uh, we're at level 2 as we're just below ground and uh, in room 22. These plaques are used um, usually, I think, their, their, their main uh, uh, point
point. The reason they exist is uh, if there's ever uh, a disaster or an emergency, uh, emergency um, services will be able to find their way through the tube station. They'll know if they've checked every room because they can uh, they can read where they are from the plaque on the wall. But I, I've always loved these plaques. It took me ages to find out what they were because um, there's no uh, information on them uh, you can usually find. I had to go into a, a PDF file which is given to everyone who works with engineers on the London Underground uh, and eventually in the back of there they had a, a description of what all the different plaques and security labels were and uh, hidden among their sort of 60 or 70 pages in was uh, the little uh, the blue plaque I was looking for so that was a, a busy day at work when I found that. Um, so anyway we're, uh, we're leaving Green Park uh, by the, the south exit of the tube station we're going to be heading literally straight straight down there's a um, path which will be leading you uh, almost directly towards Buckingham Palace but uh, as we leave the tube station the first thing you'll notice obviously there's usually a lot of people um, running about coming and going but directly in front of you is a bronze statue and a fountain uh, and it's of a woman uh, and she's un unleashing a, a dog which is sort of running off into the park and this is a, uh, uh, an image of the Roman goddess Diana. She's in her usual uh, guise as a, a huntress. Occasionally she's dressed in Roman garb with a, a bow and arrow. But uh, she's always depicted as this uh, a beautiful woman. And uh, she is one of the earliest gods to be associated with the city of London. The the rumour is, I don't think it's ever been proved, but there's always been a, a long-held um, uh, belief that on the site of St Paul's Cathedral, that's always been a, uh, a holy um, site, there was a Roman temple there, and it was believed to be of Diana, when Sir Christopher Wren was uh, uh, levelling the, the old church which had been destroyed in the fire of London to build the new cathedral. In the foundations he found... Uh, um, obviously old stones uh, of a temple, but also there were um, um, deer heads and, and antlers, and the deer had always been associated with Anna because she was this, uh, this goddess uh, of hunting. And uh, I think even uh, up until the late... Um, gosh, when was it? I can't remember. Again, it's one of these things I read about, but I believe there was um, St Paul's Cathedral. They used to have a, a ceremony once a year where the, um, a head of a deer was paraded round the uh, the site of St Paul's Cathedral. It was sort of good luck um, in high summer. And uh, again, I, th I think this is always linked to the idea that this was a, an ancient holy site dedicated to Diana, and this was the uh, the, the sort of Christian um, or the Christianization of an ancient uh, pagan belief which they carried on to keep the, the locals on side um, but uh, Diana she's always been associated with um, the moon she was a lunar goddess she was the twin of the sun god Apollo so uh, Apollo was the god of the sun and light uh, and Diana was the goddess of the moon, which was the, the, the light in the darkness. She was a, uh, a nature goddess, a female protector particularly. Uh, she was the goddess of, of childbirth and, and children. And uh, she was, in mythology, she was um, one of the three goddesses who was uh, sworn to virginity. She was a virgin uh, goddess, which is sort of interesting uh, later on. Um, she was also a protector of, of royalty and the succession of kings and queens. Um, and so she was always associated with uh, uh, that sort of idea of monarchy and royalty. And uh, so I don't think it's any surprise that uh, in the, one of the first royal parks in London that we have the goddess of royalty here. Obviously, uh, there's plenty of other links with the name Diana and the royal family, which... Well, there's, there's plenty of conspiracies about that, but I, I won't be getting into those just yet. Um, as a nature goddess, she was often uh, portrayed in a, in, a, in a triad with some other um, nature spirits. Her, her companions was a, a water nymph named uh, Igeria and a woodland uh, tree god called Viribus.
And so uh, the huntress, coupled with water and with trees, is uh, depicted here in this statue. You'll see it's a, it's a fountain and a, a drinking fountain as well. There's three pools of water joined by three trees on which Diana is standing. Uh, there's a, the repetition of the number three again here. They're, they're a, a triad of gods. Three pools of water, three trees, uh, three always being a, a magic number in numerology, but also um, in myth and fairy tales, uh, three is this magic number. There's something about the number three which uh, seems to resonate with people. Lots of people have the, you know, three's the, the lucky number, three times the charm, uh, three wishes, um, uh, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, the past, present and future there's uh, all these things are sort of wrapped up in the idea of, of three and uh, you have three uh, repeated three times there's three pools uh, there's three fountains on the statue and there's, there's three trees as well so it's a, uh, this repetition of um, uh, the number three is, is often uh, almost subliminal I'm not sure if the uh, the artist sculpting this piece was ever thinking about this when they went ahead with it, but it's it's certainly there for you to see. Um, it's interesting that Diana, this um, female virgin goddess, uh, who used to live in London under the site of St Paul's Cathedral, she was uh, often celebrated in high summer. She was a um, the middle of summer was her festival, and the Christian church has replaced that of Diana with uh, that of the Virgin Mary, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary, where she uh, is uh, taken off into heaven uh, in mid-August. So again, uh, whether it's um, sort of uh, Christianization of that feast or not, uh, there's certainly interesting parallels with the old gods being subsumed by the, the new ones. Uh, as a lunar goddess, she's occasionally depicted, not in this statue, but occasionally depicted with uh, a crescent on her head, or sometimes worn as an amulet uh, on her shoulders with the, the points uh, facing upwards. And it's believed that uh, these were often, uh, the moon was a, a good luck charm with the crescent pointing upwards. You often see it in um, uh, family crests, and obviously uh, lots of different religions have uh, crescent moons as, as part of their uh, religious iconography. But um, it's also uh, apparently the belief where uh, a horseshoe for good luck uh, is depicted with the idea that it's, uh, it's a crescent shape, it's this lunar symbol, so uh, Diana is there to, to help you if you uh, nail up your, your iron horseshoe above the door. So... Uh, it's all, and then another sort of interesting um, ancient belief which carries on through to today. So there we are, she's our, our first port of call. And uh, as we move on uh, across London, uh, sorry, across the park, following the pathway, there's a cafe on your left. Um, and as we go down, we are actually going to be following the course of the uh, ancient Tyburn River. Uh, there, was, there were two rivers which took this name. It was a uh, Tyburn being the point in further north, just behind us at the, the end of Oxford Street at Marble Arch, where the gallows used to hang the Tyburn tree, where uh, convicts were. Uh, led off to die and there were there were two rivers at this point that there was a Tyburn, I think a tributary um, which flowed underneath the, the galleys and uh, heading off down to join the Thames and the, the Tyburn River itself which flows through this park um, it's been uh, completely covered up now it's all part of the sewer system which was built but uh, as London grew and spread, it's built on, I think there's nearly half a dozen, actually no, there's going to be about a dozen uh, rivers which are um, completely buried under London now. And uh, they, uh, they're they often marked with um, roads above ground will have the name of the old uh, river. And the roads and streets often follow their course, but uh, Tyburn never lent its name to anywhere. It's only, only been memorialised by the... Um, 
the gallows, which is a bit of a shame. But uh, it was a uh, there's a wonderful book called London Under London, which I've mentioned before. That London Under London is written by uh, two guys who've got very apt names. There's Richard Trench and, and Ellis Hillman, uh, and they have a chapter in the book which focuses on the um, the lost rivers of London, and they describe where they where they go and where they flow. And uh, the Tyburn, they uh, they talk about a chap who was a uh, a chap by the name of John Hollingshead, uh, who in 1860 uh, got himself uh, into the sewers, and he got a, a couple of workmen who were. Um, he used to clean out, I think, the uh, the sewer systems, and uh, he joined them for a, a, a sort of underground walking tour. Uh, and he describes going in to the, uh, uh, the follow the course of the Tyburn River. And uh, here on page forty one of uh, London Under London, uh, we join his uh, his journey uh, under Green Park. Uh, in Piccadilly, we went up the side entrance just to get a mouthful of fresh air and a glimpse of Green Park, and then we went down again to finish our journey. We had not proceeded much further in our downward course when the guide stopped short and asked me where I supposed I thought I was now. I thought the question was unnecessary, as my position in the sewer was pretty evident. Well, I give up, I replied. Well, of course, they said. Right now you are standing directly under Buckingham Palace. Of course, my loyalty was at once excited, and taking off my fan-tailed cap, I led the way in a rousing chorus of the national anthem, insisting that my guides should join in. Uh, and so there we are. We have in 1860 a, uh, a British gent forcing a couple of sewer workers to sing the national anthem as they are crouching in the sewer underneath uh, the loos of Buckingham Palace. And uh, I thought that was... Uh, Quite a good little uh, little image there. Uh, as we uh, continue on down the path, again, sort of halfway down through the park on your left-hand side, uh, you'll see a group of trees. And uh, bizarrely, these are laid out in a an absolutely perfect circle. Uh, it was always thought, uh, again, that uh, Diana was found in Roman times. She was a nature goddess and was particularly fond of these natural groves. It's also been pointed out by some other students of the City of London that uh, this marks a point on uh, one of the ley lines which converge and cross over the city east-west and north-south. Uh, a ley line being uh, a series of at least four points directly linked in a straight line which was supposedly uh, linking either holy religious places, um, standing stones, uh, places of worship or important uh, buildings and sites in the ancient world uh, and it was believed that there was a network of power which would flow between them. Uh, it's also been pointed out that this is the focal point of a, a ley line that runs uh, north through the city. Uh, but also goes uh, uh, west to east or east to west through Buckingham Palace uh, and then you go on through the park um, to uh, Trafalgar Square and Nelson's Column uh, all the way through to uh, the Tower of London and, uh, and across the country. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't a natural grove. This was actually the site of a bandstand that used to be here, but I have read online that... Um, some people have reported seeing um, fairies, little pixie figures just disappearing out of the corner of their eye as they, as they sit here on an afternoon, but uh, I've yet to see one myself. Uh, it's at this point. Uh, if we were here in the morning, the very early morning of uh, January the 11th uh, in 1696, we'd be able to watch uh, a duel fought between uh, uh, an MP, Henry Dutton Colt, and uh, a Mr Robert Fielding, who was a notorious womaniser. I think he'd been carrying on with um, Mr Colt's wife. And they, uh, they fought a duel. Um, I think both were injured, both survived. But uh, the rumour is that if you're standing here uh, before sunrise on January the 11th, 
uh, you'll be able to hear the sound of their, their swords clashing as they recreate this fight again and again, doomed to, uh, to fight each other. So, uh, there's a few ghost stories that are uh, often told about Green Park. Uh, the site originally, um, St. James's, uh, which is probably, as we're walking down, it's over to your left, sort of far behind the, the buildings there, but St. James's had been a hospital uh, for lepers, and it was said that this uh, the park had, was marshland originally and was the burial place for these lepers. It's often said that no flowers will grow in the park because of the, uh, the bodies beneath. It would be unseemly for a, a park to have... Um, beautiful life and growth where these poor souls were buried. And there's another rumour that there's no formal borders or flowers here because Charles II was caught by his wife picking flowers for his, mis uh, for his mistress uh, and the wife got so cross that she uh, ordered all the flowers pulled up so he couldn't be uh, giving any beautiful ladies any more uh, bouquets. Um, it is correct that there are no formal borders in the park, but uh, if you're ever here in uh, springtime, it's an absolute sea of uh, of daffodils. It's it's really uh, quite amazing, and it's full of colour. But yeah, they uh, they spring up where they like, and it's uh, it makes it look absolutely fantastic. So unfortunately, uh, um, the lepers obviously like uh, a bit of colour, and so they uh, they let the daffodils bloom. There's a uh, in the 1920s, there's an author by the name of Elliot O'Donnell, who was, uh, he's a marvellous writer. He's uh, one of the go-to guys for uh, ghosts in London. Uh, and it seems everywhere he went, he was fighting off demons and uh, getting chased by ghouls and goblins. And he writes wonderful stories, and uh, which he all claims are absolutely true. And I think you have to take them with um, more than a, a pinch of salt. But uh, in his book... Haunted Houses of London. He goes into great lengths to describe the various ghosts which are found in the parks of London, and it's I think he was the um, the starting point for a lot of these stories. And uh, uh, firstly, he uh, is one of the more sort of um, classic tales. It's it's one that's very common, and it, it seems to be a feature of most places you get this story but he says in September 1901 uh, late in September in the evening he was crossing the park and he could hear a violin playing in the distance and so he he strolls over to to try and see who was playing this late at night and uh, on his way he comes across a policeman the policeman says look you can walk around the whole park you'll never find the the source of the uh, the violin and apparently it was, uh, the policeman tells him this tale that there was a, um, uh, a homeless man who used to play the violin for money. And uh, one night he fell asleep by a certain tree, woke up and his violin had been um, stolen. It was missing. And it, uh, his only source of income, he was absolutely devastated. It, it probably affected him so much that he, he went slightly mad. He spent the next few days wandering around the park asking everyone who he came across if they'd found his violin. After three days, no food, no uh, no way of making any money, he is discovered in the morning he'd, he'd hung himself from the tree where he lost his violin, uh, using his own braces. And uh, the police officer who had found the body while doing patrols the next night saw in the distance uh, the spectral figure of a a seated man playing a, a violin and he could hear the, the tune um, gliding over the park. And, uh, so he was reunited at the end of his life with his, with his violin and he was still playing music there. And apparently again, uh, late September evenings, you may be able to hear the, uh, the sound of these violins playing. Uh, perhaps the most um, well-known story of... Uh, the ghost of Green Park was the uh, the frog monster 
uh, which sounds absolutely wonderful. And uh, again, he tells the story. A lot of his stories um, always come from uh, homeless people who he meets. He calls them tramps. Um, but uh, again and again, it's uh, it's a story of uh, a tramp said to me this, and uh, you know, there's often um, very romantic tales of love and loss, and uh, men who come back to find lost wives and things. And uh, uh, there's a, uh, a a haunted bench. Sorry, this is a I've got I'm waylaid from the frog monster here. But no, there's a, a haunted bench uh, bench which you can sit at, and uh, suddenly the spirit of an old man with wild staring eyes uh, appears next to you. And if you turn to talk to him, he'll pull out an old rusty broken razor and slit his own throat in front of you and stare at you as his uh, blood and gore spurts from the wound and then suddenly vanish before you can cry out. Uh, but uh, no, the frog monster, uh, he claims as he's walking through the park uh, with his dog, um, his dog uh, suddenly uh, gives a howl of terror, um, runs off, uh, he eventually finds him, uh, continuing on the walk, he, he can't get the dog to pass this, this certain tree, he never says where it is, he never describes it in any more than saying there's a, a tree in the park, and if you're standing here in Green Park, there's certainly plenty of them uh, to choose from. Um, but uh, to get to the bottom of the mystery, Mr O'Donnell uh, goes to inspect the tree, and he's, he's looking around, he's obviously sensitive to uh, creatures from the other side, and he's hoping he'll find the reason for the... Uh, the, something that spooked the dog, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, this uh, he described it as a large, repellent, inhuman, grotesque insect with malignant intentions drops to the ground from the branches of the tree. Uh, right down next to him, uh, hypnotized in terror, he manages to make a run for it. Luckily, thank goodness for that. Um, but then he uh, he goes on to describe uh, the story he hears from. Uh, two chaps, um, two other homeless people who'd, uh, who'd seen the same thing. Uh, and so we, we take up the story here in uh, More Haunted Houses of London, uh, this tale that uh, this, this homeless chap tells him. He, uh, he's woken up uh, in the night uh, where his, uh, his friend, uh, a chap called Palin, were asleep under this same tree and... Uh, Staring down at me were two eyes, pale eyes, that seemed to have no actual colour, but to be wholly animated with spite and hate. The face they belonged to was a curious cross between that of a pig and that of a wolf. The mouth and snout were wolfish, the ears and general contour were piggish. It was quite hairless, of a startling lurid white. As I looked up at it, too terrified to utter a sound or move, it, shout, it shot out an enormously long red tongue, curled at the end like the tongue of an anteater. And with its evil, glittering eyes still fixed on mine, it suddenly began to descend from the tree. I then saw its body, which is quite nude, and like that of a very unshapely and repulsive woman. Catching hold of a branch with two huge hands, it dropped to the ground with a soft thud. Soft thud just such a noise as you described, and then stole towards me. I tell you, boss, it's a long time since I prayed, but I made use of some kind of prayer then, and jerking myself away from the spot with an effort, I made a bolt for it. An hour or so later, I summoned up the courage to steal back and see how Palin was getting on, and he was there right enough, lying on the ground, just as I'd left him, apparently still asleep. At first I did not dare venture under the branches of the tree for fear of seeing that cursed thing again, but I halted a few feet away and called out to him. There was no reply. I called again, still no reply. Then growing anxious, I went, in spite of my terror of the tree, right up to my mate and shook him by the shoulder. There was no response. His head simply fell limply on one side. He was dead. And there was no manner of doubt of what he had died of. It was fright, and it was written only too clearly across his face. And uh, so that was, I think, one of the few who had actually uh, seen the monster and lived to tell the tale. Uh, they go on to describe how this tree seems to have a remarkable effect on women, uh, and that other uh, homeless women who sleep under it often become possessed with a hatred of men. 
uh, and one old lady called Molly, uh, who was asleep with uh, this uh, homeless chap again underneath the same tree. Why he's gone back to the tree, I've, I've no idea. Uh, but uh, he's asleep under it, and all of a sudden, uh, Molly is possessed by this sort of uh, evil spirit, and she starts trying to strangle her husband. And uh, yeah, they say that the, the spirit which inhibits this tree uh, is a man hater. Uh, you mark my words, boss. That frog face, something that haunts this tree, is no friend to you or me or to any of our sex. So there we are. Uh, men beware crossing the park. Um, you may well come across the, the spirit of an evil wog, uh, wolf, frog, monster man who will uh, leap out and chase you. Um, right, as we carry on crossing the park, we're going to get to Canada Gate. Um, to the right-hand side, there's a little crossing uh, where you can walk over to uh, Buckingham Palace. And uh, if you want to head over to the Victoria Memorial, there's a few little interesting things to, to point out here. Uh, again, I've mentioned before, I mentioned in the, the introduction uh, episode that uh, if you look at where you're standing on a map, um, it's a, a, a five-pointed star radiating out. The, one of the points goes directly to the Canada Gate, which bizarrely um, doesn't line up anywhere. It's a, literally, it's a gate to nowhere. It was always intended that it would sort of line up with an avenue that would cross Green Park and give you a view of uh, the Queen Victoria Memorial, but it doesn't quite work. The geometry isn't there, so it's bizarrely, while the, uh, the five-pointed triangle works very nicely, the the reason for the gate to be there isn't. So it's it's one of these things where a lot of people say, you know, there's the secrets uh, built into the city and um, the, the sacred geometry uh, means there's, there's roads to nowhere. And you can see it when you look at the map. Uh, but in the centre of this, uh, this pentagram star, there is the Queen Victoria Memorial. It's one of the, the tallest statues to uh, a monarch uh, in the country. It's 25 metres tall. Uh, and they started building it just after her death. I think it was eventually unveiled in... Um, I think it was 1922. It took an, an age to produce. Um, again, this is supposedly on uh, a fairly uh, important ley line in the book, Earth Stars by C.E. Street, which I'm... I will sort of get to you later. It's a bit of a head scratch of this one, but he has um, produced uh, a number of. Um, he's marked a number of sacred sites across London. He's um, realised that they're all connected by these two interlocking circles, uh, and it forms um, stars uh, and uh, pentagrams and you know thirty-sided shapes and things that they all link up to these various important points but they're one of the central um, defining points on his star map of the city of London is the Queen Victoria Memorial and uh, the statue itself uh, if you look at the Queen you, you probably won't be able to see it but apparently uh, the, the chaps who were cleaning it once they, they noticed that the Queen was wearing her a wedding ring on the right hand and this proves that she was married in the uh, the German tradition of uh, the ancient German tradition of Prince Albert where the, the wedding ring is not on the left hand but but on the right hand um, there's some huge figures which dominate the four corners of this fountain again it's a fountain there's the the idea of uh, running water is always um, been seen uh, as a sort of a special place, a holy place. Uh, often, um, standing stones are near water sources, and you know there was often a, a guardian spirit there. Uh, and again, so we have a a fountain here with um, the guardian queen standing over it. But uh, the four corners uh, of these statues, which were so, uh, they're embodying sort of various aspects of the uh, Victorian personality. And on the, uh, it's what side is? I think it's probably the the eastern side. I don't know how you'd describe it, but there's a a figure of a man. He's standing next to a lion, 
uh, and he's holding this flaming torch in his left hand over his head. And of all the figures here, uh, there's two men, two women um, uh, on the four corners, but this is the only man who's got a laurel on his head, that ancient symbol of, uh, of royalty and, and for the gods. The gods wore laurels, most famous uh, of all the gods, always depicted with the laurels on his head, is Apollo, the twin brother of Diana, who we met at the beginning of our journey. The god Apollo is the, the sun god who pulled the sun across, his, uh, across the sky uh, with his chariot. Uh, and uh, here he is holding his, his torch. Uh, officially, this statue represents uh, progress. Uh, but this is this is uh, Apollo. Uh, as a sun god, he was is often depicted um, in sort of occult uh, iconography, uh, and he's he seems to be everywhere in Victorian London. Um, I may well discuss it at some point. I will get there eventually, uh, but just outside the Duke of Wellington's house at Hyde Park Corner, there is. Um, a huge triumphal arch, and on top of that is one of the largest, actually the largest bronze statue in Europe of um, victory uh, on a chariot being pulled by four horses. And, and what you can't really see unless you're at um, you're far enough away, or you know, almost at you know level uh, with victory on there. But there's a little boy steering that chariot and that again that is Apollo uh, the sun god with his four horses uh, there's another quite famous statue called the horses of Helios near Piccadilly uh, Circus and that's always fascinated me there, there's a story there definitely that uh, in a future episode I'll get to but uh, Apollo is here uh, and uh, he's standing next to his lion the symbol of royalty uh, of power that's sort of king of the beasts um, but interestingly, the, the Temple of Apollo uh, in Greece, in, in Delos, uh, the, the temple there for Apollo is flanked with uh, huge marble lions. Uh, Delos was supposedly uh, the place where uh, both Apollo and Diana, uh, the sun and the moon, is where they were born. Uh, so again, it's interesting to see these two twin uh, ancient pagan gods are still alive and well in central London in these royal parks um, it's also said that with the Christianization of the country uh, the old gods were turned into monsters and Apollo the sun god the light bringer the morning star became associated with uh, Lucifer the light bring a angel who was so uh, proud of his uh, of his own light that he took against God and his angels, led a rebellion and was eventually cast out of heaven uh, into hell became Satan and so the uh, the sun god became the, uh, the, the the lord of hell right, moving away from Queen Victoria and her memorial is uh, the biggest building in the area, but you know, uh, the biggest building in the the country. You know, from a sort of iconistic point of view, it's, it's Buckingham Palace. Um, obviously, again, you know, you can look at Wikipedia about the the history of the building. I'm not here to tell you that. It's um, uh, there's plenty to be said, and actually, I think that I will go into that at some point again. Another. Um, additional podcast but right now we're here we're uh, we're on the trail of ghosts there are two spirits associated with the palace uh, apparently there's a, a monk uh, you can see in chains uh, who often is uh, spotted in the garden apparently there used to be a monastery uh, on this site but uh, spirits uh, wrapped in cowls are, are often seen. I, I wonder if that is uh, more to do with the fact that dead bodies were wrapped in shrouds and uh, if you were to see a, a, a risen spirit wrapped in 
their last earthly garments, it would be uh, this sort of shroud or cowl, so they might be uh, confused with monks, but I think there is a there's always various stories about monks carrying on with nuns and getting caught out and uh, and being killed and so uh, they they haunt the areas where they were where were last seen so there's this monk in the garden of Buckingham Palace if you can ever get in uh, also inside the palace there's supposed to be the the spirit of major John Gwynne who was secretary to Edward the 7th um private secretary and uh he was, uh, Mr. Gwynne was divorced and uh, sort of fearing this sort of huge scandal and uh, his loss of position. Um, he, uh, it resulted in his committing suicide at his desk in the palace. Uh, apparently you can occasionally hear gunshots ringing out and uh, a figure passing uh, through walls and doors in the upper floor. I, uh, I wonder why uh, a secretary who got divorced would be, be so upset when... Uh, Edward VII was such a, uh, a wonderfully controversial character who, who didn't seem to mind getting into bed with nearly anyone. And so, uh, yeah, I don't think he would have been too uh, upset with the idea of a, a divorced man working for him. Um, but I think that just uh, it goes to show that I, I did some research and uh, not anywhere can I find a, a Major John Gwynne uh, being part of the royal household. So, uh, unfortunately, I think we can probably lay that ghost uh, to rest. Uh, interestingly, it was, it was Queen Victoria who was uh, the first monarch to actually live in uh, Buckingham Palace. Um, and uh, she has always had a rather interesting history with the occult. Obviously, she was queen during a time when there was um, lots of uh, supposed belief in spirit communications. Uh, seances were, were very common uh, at this time. And uh, in 1861, at fairly uh, young age, I think he's sort of mid-40s, um, her beloved husband, Prince Albert, he dies. Uh, and the queen... Uh, enters the the mourning that she'll be in for the rest of her life. Uh, she'll never get over the the loss of this uh, husband that she loves so much. And uh, uh, the rumours have it that um, she tried desperately to continue to communicate with him. She would hold seances in Buckingham Palace, but um, we do know actually for certain that in her home in. Um, Osborne House in the Isle of Wight. Uh, she definitely held a number of seances there. Actually, I was there in, in the summertime and I was chatting to one of the uh, volunteers who worked there and I said, oh, um, uh, I've heard a lot about Queen Victoria and her seances. And the guide said, oh, yes, yes, they, they had a special seance room. Actually, well, we call it the, the antler room now, but that was, yeah, where she had her seances with um, uh, guests and her family, and particularly John Brown. Uh, who was, again, her uh, Scottish um, uh, gilly, a uh, uh, gameskeeper for her um, Scottish lands, who became a very close friend and an advisor. And he uh, uh, was uh, had uh, some sort of spiritual power, and he often would lead these seances in the house. Uh, there's a, a story about a, a very young boy, a 14-year-old called Robert James Lees, who did exist. He was a, a psychic and a medium uh, at the time, uh, and he supposedly um, came nine times uh, to the palace, nine times, three times, three. Um, he was uh, summoned to the palace because he had such powers of communication with the other side. Apparently he... Um, two of the Queen's advisers came to meet him, this young boy, and he recognised them instantly as masons and uh, knew the secret uh, code words and handshakes of the organisation, but also, uh, as a proof of his powers, he um, gave them a name which Albert only used with Victoria. Uh, and they went back to the Queen, and uh, apparently, yeah, that was enough for her to convince her. So, uh, excuse me, Robert James Lees became a uh, a spiritual advisor to the Queen very briefly. There's no proof of this as far as uh, I've been able to find. Apparently, in Robert James Lee's papers when he died, he had um, uh, a book that was presented to him by Queen Victoria. No one quite knows how he'd got it, and so it was assumed that she gave the young boy um, 
gift for his troubles. Uh, it's also said that uh, Robert James Lees, um, uh, after a number of seances, said, look, no, I, from now on, uh, it'll be through um, uh, your gilly John Brown. He'll be the, the man to help you with your seances in the future. Uh, later on, in 1888, Robert James Lees uh, investigates the case of Jack the Ripper and has some uh, rather interesting things to say about the case. A lot of it, actually, you can read if, you, um, if you've ever read the uh, graphic novel by um, Alan Moore, From Hell. Robert James Lee's features as a, as a character in that, and he said it's an interesting little side story. He, is, he supposedly predicts the house where Jack the Ripper lives. Um, the royal family, it's not just Queen Victoria who had this uh, rather strange, wonderful uh, occult history. Um, also, the uh, Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, she has a very interesting family history. She's from the, the Bowes Lion family, uh, whose ancestral home is Glam's Castle up in Scotland. And uh, the tale here begins in uh, supposedly 1821. Uh, young Thomas Bowes Lion was born on the 21st of October. Uh, he's said to die the same day. The midwife, who was there, insists that the child was alive while she was there, never died. And it was said that this, this baby was a monster. It was a hugely deformed, weird creature with a, a huge chest and oversized head. And strange, misshapen limbs, no neck. Uh, and it was... Uh, such a hideous creature, they didn't know what to do. They kept it secret. They uh, spread the rumour that the child had died, and instead they build a secret chamber in the castle. They lock it up, and uh, the, the child is fed by one of the, the family retainers. It's assumed that the child would soon die, but it lives for nearly 200 years, locked away in this secret chamber. The secret of the monster, known only to three members of the family, the current Earl... Uh, his son, who learns the secret on his 21st birthday, and the uh, the servant who has to, to feed the beast. Uh, there's stories that a, a workman doing some um, work on the castle uh, in the late 1880s, I think, uh, happens across the room and glances inside, and then the next day is sent to Australia, to uh, paid for by the Earl. Um, with a sort of sack of money and told not to reveal what he saw. The uh, One of the young earls, a clawed bow's lion, was pressed by his friends to reveal the secret. It seems to be a sort of uh, a known secret. Everyone seems to know there's, there's something in there about it. And Claude, pressed by his friends, says, Yes, I've been in the room, I've heard the secret. And if you wish to please me, you will never mention it again. Uh, another uh, very good author, uh, a historian, and a ghost hunter called James Wentworth Day uh, wrote a biography in, the, uh, in 1967, uh, a biography called The Queen Mother's Family Story. Uh, and in that, um, he claims a, a mystery source has actually seen this monster, and it's sort of heavily suggested that it's the Queen Mother herself. Uh, and she says that, yes, I've seen it. It's, it's chest, an enormous barrel, hairy as a doormat, uh, the head that runs straight into the shoulders, and his arms and legs were toy-like. And it was believed that uh, the creature dies at some point in the 1920s. The room is sealed up, and uh, uh, it's never found again at a, a party. 
uh, at the house at, at Glam's Castle uh, on one quiet afternoon. They're at, at a loss for what to do, and so they suggest, you know, they, they've heard the rumours of the secret room, and they say, right, what we'll do, we'll find every window in the house, we'll hang uh, a blanket from that window, and then um, we'll go outside and, and count the blankets and, and see if there's a window. Uh, that hasn't one hanging from it, apparently there uh, on the upper floors of the castle. And if you actually look online, this is a weird castle. There's there's turrets and, and walkways, and, you know, it's it's like something out of a, uh, a gothic um, romance. And uh, there it is. Uh, they see on the upper floors a, a window without a blanket, the, the secret chamber within with, you know, the, the body of the creature hidden inside. Um, Lady Granville, who was uh, the aunt of Queen Elizabeth, and I think friends with the Bose Lion family, actually she was in it, um, when she was asked uh, about the monster, if there's any truth to it, uh, she was quoted as saying, uh, we were never allowed to talk about it when we were children. Our parents absolutely forbade us ever to even discuss it uh, or to ask any questions. My father and grandfather absolutely refused to ever discuss it with us. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, again, another tale. Coming to uh, more um, modern-day monsters, uh, it's often been said that Prince Philip has, has uh, throughout his life, an interest in the supernatural, but most particularly um, the alien question and, and UFOs. Uh, he's a keen pilot, uh, and it was thought that uh, he was often kept up to date with sightings that the RAF had had. Um, Prince Philip's uncle, um, uh, Mountbatten, uh, Lord Mount, uh, first Earl Mountbatten of Burma, I should say, uh, he was Admiral of the Fleet. Um, he uh, he had service in both world wars, uh, and it was said that in the Second World War he was constantly getting reports of uh, the so-called Foo Fighters, these uh, weird craft which would keep track of um, American and British uh, bomber planes over Europe. Um, the Allied pilots thought this was some sort of German secret weapon. The Germans, who were seeing the same things that would follow their, their V2 rockets from launch sites, thought it was a, a British weapon. Uh, and these, these weird glowing lights would uh, follow craft, they'd hover, they'd keep distance, they'd, they'd track around these um, uh, bombers and... and, and uh, single-seater uh, fighter craft, and then suddenly they zoom off at terrifically high speeds. Uh, and so Mountbatten was, had apparently pages and pages of these documents, and he would discuss it with the children. There's a, a book where they reference the fact that uh, while talking with his daughters uh, in the 1950s, it was, he, came, he sort of announced his theory that he thought that uh, not only were UFOs real, but the, the objects themselves were the aliens. There was no little green men inside, but um, he thought that you know if life could if develop and evolve somewhere else in the galaxy, there's no reason why. Um, they would look human, they could be enormous, they could be glowing, they could travel at these uh, incredible speeds, fade in and out of, uh, of sight. And so he thought you know the, the craft themselves were the aliens. Uh, again, in the 1950s, uh, there was a, a UFO which landed at his uh, house, Broadlands, which is near Romsey in Hampshire. Uh, and there was a, a chap by the name of Fred Briggs, who was a retired sergeant uh, from the army, uh, who continued to work uh, for the royal family. He was a bricklayer for the estate. And as he was uh, cycling the grounds one day, he spotted uh, this huge uh, craft hovering in the distance over uh, the Earl's land. Uh, this sharp, uh, the craft he describes as looking like a sort of huge um, boiler with porthole windows in the side with weird uh, flashing lights. He says, uh, descending from the bottom is a sort of man um, in a dark overalls that sort of comes down a sort of beam of light in the classic cartoon UFO style. Uh, and it was a, a snowy day, and the the, the the chap sort of steps out onto the snow, uh, looking around this alien creature. Mr. Briggs, in his surprise, falls off his bicycle, uh, looks at it a minute, causes such a scene, sort of running off, that the, the alien um, sees what he's doing, climbs back into the craft, and, and it zips away. Um, he goes back to the uh, the head of the estate, and they 
they give a report. They, they obviously, I don't think they ever mention uh, the word alien, but they certainly say, you know, UFO, literally unidentified object. And for security reasons, uh, a, uh, a report is drawn up, uh, which um, Mountbatten actually signs and witnesses and said, yeah, like we, uh, they patrol the grounds. They see in the snow the trail of uh, the bicycle. They see a, um, a point where the, the bicycle stops. Uh, there's the ground is. Uh, churned up where he's fallen off the bicycle and then picked it up and you can see it zipping back in the same direction. Uh, there's no impression where the, the craft was spotted, but uh, Mountbatten says, no, I absolutely believe that uh, the story is true. This man saw something, though. Uh, I have no idea what it is. But anyway, uh, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, um, he gets his interest in uh, the paranormal and the UFOs through his uncle, who was very close with him. Uh, and... Uh, he, uh, with his links to RAF, he gets constant reports, apparently. Um, while talking with pilots in the late 60s, he uh, mentions that um, uh, fighter jets have been scrambled to try and chase these things as they come in and out of British airspace, some of these pilots never returning again t uh, to the extent where they no longer use fighter jets, but they use uh, jet tankers, which are more or less the same size, the same speed, but they had fuel for, for 15 hours rather than the, the two hours of fuel which uh, smaller fighters would, would carry, and so there's prolonged chases of UFOs above the skies of Britain. Uh, Genuinely, it's, this is, I think, probably the most bizarre thing I, I researched on this whole uh, um, episode. But um, an equerry who is a, essentially an uh, advisor to Prince Philip, um, a chap by the name of Sir Peter Horsley, he was a senior RAF commander. Um, he was assistant to uh, Prince Philip from 1953 to 1956. Uh, and in this time, he's, um, he's acting as... Uh, unofficial investigator for uh, for Philip and he sent out to uh, um, interview those people that Philip may not be able to ask himself for fear of uh, being uh, sort of caught and, and ridiculed in the press and so excuse me um, Peter Horsley uh, sort of sets up the, the, the British Royal X-Files uh, in 1997 Horsley writes his autobiography uh, called Sounds from Another Room. Uh, he has many uh, absolutely in insane adventures. He uh, fights in the Second World War. He's shot down and uh, has visions uh, as he's sort of uh, in the ocean between tangling between heaven and hell of um, ghosts and spirits coming to talk to him. Uh, and he has uh, all these sort of weird, wonderful things happen, uh, which are, I think, all, all obviously the true adventures which people had uh, in these extraordinary times. But the weirdest. Uh, tale he has is that in uh, 1954, Sir Peter Horsley, through the direction of uh, a military general, uh, comes to a, a house in Smith Street in Chelsea, uh, where he's introduced to a mysterious man uh, known and described only as Mr. Janus. And uh, again, I thought, uh, Janus, let's say. Uh, uh, another Roman god, the third in our story, three. Um, he was the god of beginnings, of gates, uh, of doorways and portals. Uh, the Roman god, you, I'm sure you may have seen uh, images of him. He's always depicted with two heads, one looking forward uh, into the future, the other looking backwards into the past. So it was yeah, interesting that uh, this chap, mysterious man, Mr Janus, uh, had this... Um, ancient uh, god's name but um, more extraordinary is that Mr. Janus uh, was an alien uh, and he communicated telepathically uh, with Sir Peter uh, that uh, he was travelled here from um, far far distant galaxies and he was insisting that uh, he was allowed to, to meet with the prince apparently they, there's a whole chapter in his, his book uh, detailing the discussion they have for the course of about two hours uh, and apparently this uh, this alien creature says um, as they communicate they're, they're telepathically having a conversation and uh, uh, the alien says that um, 
Prince Philip is a, a man of great vision who strongly believes in the proper relationship between man and nature, uh, which will prove of the greatest importance in future galactic harmony. So uh, there we are. Prince Philip um, had his, uh, his personal UFO investigator meet with uh, probably, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, a space alien. Uh, it was, I think it's widely held that Sir Peter Horsley was uh, actually the victim of a sort of a C, uh, an MI5 ruse here uh, to, to check the integrity of uh, his own beliefs, make sure he wasn't sort of blabbing top secret uh, information to any Tom, Dick or Harry who claimed to be an alien. But if if that was the case, it seems unusual. This, this took place in 1954 and uh, Mr Hawley, though he was not equerry for much longer to the Prince of Wales, he certainly continued in the RAF and he became... Uh, um, God, he was head of the RAF strike force in the 1970s. This guy had, you know, literally his, his finger on the nuclear button. Um, and uh, his belief in, in uh, aliens and in UFOs didn't hold him back. So uh, you'd think the MI5 might steer him away from that sort of thing if, uh, if that's what he believed. But uh, there we are, the prince uh, is strongly held belief in aliens who actually uh, very nearly came to meet one. Um, and I think that is probably where we should leave it today. We've, we've crossed the park, we've met gods and monsters, um, and we're uh, unfortunately at the end of this episode. Um, if you do have any questions or uh, any other uh, comments, please do let me know. Uh, you can join the Facebook group, uh, which if you search on Facebook, if you search for um, Invisible London, an occult guide to the city, uh, you can join there. Um, I will make sure I'll put some, uh, some try and get some photographs. Unfortunately, my camera um, doesn't work at the moment, so there's, there's not much on there at the minute, as I simply just can't take the photos of these places, but eventually we will uh, have a more complete record of um, the statue, the, the grove, um, some of the places where these, uh, these ghosts are supposed to be. Um, but also you can get in contact with me uh, on uh, Twitter, uh, which is at the invisible LDN. And um, uh, if you've got the time, you can always send an email, which is invisiblelondon at mail.com. Um, uh, if you've got any questions, if you've got any suggestions for other places to look at in the future, I will be very happy to take a look. Um, but that is that. Night is drawing in. Uh, the fire is burning down. I finish my drink, and uh, there's nothing else left to say. But uh, this has been Invisible London, uh, and thank you very much for listening. Good night. <laughs>